So I took a couple days this week and went down to see my aging parents. My sister lives nearby. She's one of the sweetest people in the world. So when I tell you this story, it's totally out of character to her uh, temperament and personality and all of that. But um, when uh, we were growing up, I lived or we lived on the edge of the campus of the University of Kansas. In fact, right across right out our backyard across the alley was the campus property and from my bedroom window I could see Allen Fieldhouse um, which is of deep importance and a sacred place for me but um, uh, we, uh, we lived because we lived on the edge of the campus um, students often parked in front of our house and walked to classes so we saw a lot of college students and one time I think it was summer students were going to summer school classes and we my sister and I were seated on the front porch on the steps and we were watching students go by and my sister came up with a game. And the game was this, she said, you say yes and I'll say no. So, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and pretty soon I decided I didn't want to say yes. I said, I want to say no. No, you can't say no. And so it went on and got louder and louder and louder until my mother came out of the door and stopped the whole game. You know, that sort of thing is very childish, isn't it? You can just see your own children probably doing that. Except that adults do it as well, don't we? And we're looking at a short letter that St. Paul wrote to a young friend of his, someone he was mentoring, a man named Timothy. It's the short book of 2 Timothy, and it contains some really interesting lessons about leadership, both for then and for now. And one of the pieces of advice that Paul had for Timothy here is to avoid what he calls senseless controversy. If you want to, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, where we're going to start. The words will also be on the screen. And it's there that Paul writes to Timothy, warn them, that is the church that Timothy's pastoring, before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value. It only ruins those who listen. Now what was happening is that there were those in the church, in that particular church, who had an ongoing argument about things that Paul said just don't matter. They got into what you might call word battles, senseless little word battles, and it might have been theological speculation or dispute or about how something was done in the church, but they got so wrapped up into these arguments that they lost perspective. So Paul tells Timothy, tell them to stop it. What they're arguing about doesn't matter. In fact, it can even ruin them. Now, in every age, there are those who love to argue. Even Paul would agree that some issues are worth holding on to tightly. But far too often, we dispute over matters that have little or no consequence. They just don't matter, at least don't matter very much. And we do more harm than good by getting into these sorts of arguments. Plus, Christian faith is more than just a list of questions to discuss and problems to solve. Now, I've been a Christian long enough to hear people argue about a range of topics that I have concluded are hardly worth the breath to discuss them. For example, predicting when Jesus will return. Now, Jesus himself said that we're never going to know. In fact, he doesn't know. Only God does. So why do we think we can figure it out? Or the relationship between God's guidance of history and human free will. Some argue one is more important than the other. The Bible argues for both. I believe both are true, and it's a mystery how they relate. And the key point is that God has a plan for history, and we're responsible to do our part. And how that all works together, I'm not sure we're ever going to completely understand. Or it might be controversies about how things are done in the church, arguments over music or any number of things. And Paul says these things are just not worth contending for. We need to reserve firmness for issues that really matter, 
not things that are more in the speculative realm. Paul picks this same theme up a few verses later in verses 16 and 17 when he says, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. That's a pretty vivid metaphor. Now, what's interesting here is that he's saying that the people who are having these sorts of arguments think they're pretty good people. But Paul says, no, they're becoming more and more ungodly. What's more is the very things that they are saying are spreading like disease. And again, the metaphor he uses here is gangrene, which is a disease that eats away the flesh as it spreads. It shows that this kind of argument eats away at the lives of individuals and the life of the church. And I've seen whole churches embroiled in controversy by people who believe they're doing God a favor, and instead they're destroying, destroying people's lives. Paul tells Timothy to avoid these sorts of arguments. They're not harmless. They can spread, they can eat away at our souls and destroy our churches. And then he gives an example. Now, we don't know these folks, but he talks about them. He says, among them, this is these sort of argumentative types, are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Now, we don't know exactly what the argument is about, but we can narrow it down at least a little bit. Most likely, it had to do with the promise that Jesus has left all of us, that one day, those of us who have a relationship with Jesus will ourselves be raised from the dead and live with him for eternity. Except that these two guys that Timothy mentions disagreed. They didn't believe in a future bodily resurrection. It's possible they didn't even believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now we have this idea that somehow ancient people were more gullible than we are. Some people argue that uh, uh, Jesus, that because we have modern understanding, we know for sure that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The ancient people may have believed that superstition, but, but we don't. Well, ancient people knew exactly what we know, and that is that dead people don't come back to life. That is why none of the, not a single one of Jesus' disciples, after he died, believed that he would rise from the dead. That is, until they saw him themselves. Now, in the 19th century, some so-called Bible scholars started to argue that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He couldn't have, because they knew from modern science. So they began to talk about the idea of the Jesus of history, that is, the Jesus who lived and died and stayed dead, and the Christ of faith, the person who inspires us by his spiritual example. The idea is that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, but we can be inspired by his spiritual example and have a spiritual experience of ourselves that carries us forward. Now, in Timothy's day, that wasn't probably the exact argument that these two men were making. Their disbelief in the resurrection called into question what Paul and others taught, and that is that one day we too will be raised from the dead. It's one of the most inspiring ideas in the writings of Paul and the other New Testament authors, because it's the promise that one day Jesus will return, and that all those who know him will be raised again, that God will bring justice, he'll make the world right, and that we will live for eternity with him in a new heaven that's made here on earth, in a place that John describes in the book of Revelation as a place with no tears, no pain, no death. So if Paul's right, then Hymenaeus and Philetus are wrong. And that's why Paul says they've departed from the truth. And getting this wrong, he says, is a big deal. The resurrection of Jesus made sure that our faith is more than just an experience, but a reality we can look forward to. And departing from the truth will leave us in the wrong direction. When I was a college student, there were a couple of girls I knew who lived uh, just in a town over called Topeka. It's the capital of the state of Kansas. 
And there's a turnpike that was built before the uh, whole Eisenhower uh, interstate freeway system from Kansas City to Wichita, Kansas. And it still today charges you a fee. And these young girls got on the freeway in Topeka to go to Kansas City, but got onto the wrong exit or entrance to the freeway and didn't realize they were going the wrong direction until they arrived in Wichita. That's a considerable distance away. So if we depart from the truth, we can go in the wrong direction completely. Now in verse 23, Paul returns to this idea of quarreling. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. So stay uh, clear of these kinds of arguments. They're not helpful. They just go round and round and round. Everybody gets hot and bothered and it leads nowhere. Now, Paul's not saying to Timothy to let everything go. In other places, he's told to correct theological errors that others might have. But he is saying, don't get drawn into senseless arguments that lead to heated disputes and controversies. Years ago, just I think a year or two after we started City Church, I, I received a package in the mail. It was a book from a friend I had not seen in, I think, about 15 years. And the book was by her pastor, and it was a written critique, 200 pages or more, of one of America's famous megachurch pastors. And in 200 pages, it picked apart everything this person said, claimed that he was teaching heresy, and leading people astray. And I skimmed the first few chapters and knew immediately that the author had cherry-picked quotes and put them together in ways that looked kind of um, spurious. Now, while he might have had a few valid points, overall, I think the book was very unfair. And it would do no good. So I tossed the book. If you surf the internet long enough, you will find countless self-appointed heresy hunters who think it's their job to display spiritual gotcha. And there are still others that function like the Christian version of TMZ and love to find dirt on Christian celebrities. Now, I'm not saying that leaders shouldn't be accountable, but the goal of many of these folks appears simply to be to tear down, not to build up. A few weeks ago, I had uh, breakfast with an old friend of mine that I've not seen for some time, and over bacon and eggs, he described a struggle that he's having with a really close friend of his, someone that I also know, although not nearly as well as he does. And this friend of his loves to argue. And he, uh, my friend, has become increasingly frustrated after a long series of petty arguments and discussions that they've been having. He told me he can't have a conversation with this person anymore without him trying to convince him of one thing or another. And the most recent thing was, what version of the Bible is the best version of the Bible? Let me just say, we have a lot of great English translations, and they're most of them, I think all of them, are pretty good. They're different, but they're good. Now, after listening for my, to my friend talk for a while, I couldn't help but think, as we're preparing to go through this book of 2 Timothy, of the words of verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. At least from my vantage point, my friend's friend has let himself become a quarrelsome and contentious person. And so I suggested to my friend not to get drawn into those petty arguments, even if it means spending less time with someone who's been a really good friend because it can only lead to ruin. The main point here is that we can't let ourselves get drawn into spiritual hair-splitting arguments. They don't do us any good, and they can lead people away from the truth. And in the worst cases, they can destroy a healthy church. So don't start fights, do something positive, and all that leads to a second argument that Paul weaves through this section to, second Tim or to Timothy. And the idea first surfaces in verse 15 when he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, 
a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, when he says, uh, do your, your best to present yourself as one approved, the word approved means to stand the test. It's a word that's used in a number of different ways, but one of the ways it's used is to describe how the purification process works when you're, um, when you're uh, refining silver or gold. You heat it up, and the impurities are skimmed off the top. And it, in the end, you say that that gold or silver has stood the test. Sometimes there's some substance that looks like gold but maybe isn't, so you test it by putting it into fire. So not only is this worker one who's approved, they also, he says, doesn't need to be ashamed before their boss because they've done a good job. Specifically, they have correctly handled the word of truth, or that is the core teaching of Christian faith. The word handle here means to cut straight, and there are a lot of different ways that it could be understood, but one is the way you can think about creating a road through a wilderness where you clear away rocks, trees, and even hills to make a straight path for the road. That means that we're to teach the Bible or the truths of the Bible in, in, in ways so that others can hear that both accurately and clearly, to give a straightforward explanation of the truth. The test of this is that ultimately the effect that it has on those who listen. In the end, those who hear what we teach should find themselves closer to God and to one another. If what we teach only leads to arguments and controversy, then what we're teaching is wrong. In the forecast vision that we um, introduced for City Church about a year and a half ago, we said that the test of whether we have succeeded in pursuing this particular vision for the next chapter of our church ministry is by being able to answer this question. Are we, and this is personally and as a community, growing in our love for God and our love for others? So the test of whether or not we're doing what God wants of us is whether we're growing closer to God and closer to one another. So we're not only learning more, but our actions and our affections are more Christ-like. And if that's not true, then we're not doing things correctly. Now, Paul says not only should a good leader be able to teach the truth well, they should also approach the job in a particular way. And here's what Paul has to say in verses 24 to 25. He says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, earlier I said, what, what Paul said is that we're to avoid foolish and senseless arguments. That doesn't mean that we're not to have theological standards. But just because we have standards doesn't mean that we're to be jerks. That's why Paul tells Timothy to be gentle with those that he finds in error. He's to teach them in a way that doesn't tear down, but with the hope of persuading them of the truth. And then he says something interesting. He says, God will grant them repentance. Sometimes we think it's our job to persuade others. And the truth is we do have a job. We need to speak the truth. Something that Paul says we're to do gently. And in another place he says we're to do it with love. But ultimately, the job of persuasion is God's. It's God who illuminates minds and hearts to be able to hear what he has to say. Now, I don't know about some of you, but I would imagine that a few of you at least are thinking, well, none of this really has anything to say to me. I'm not a teacher, although others of you say, yeah, well, I do teach children or I lead a growth group or maybe I teach in some other way. And so if you do teach, you can see the immediate implications. But if you don't, you may think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. 
except that it does because all of us teach in ways that maybe you don't even imagine. And that is, by the way, we live our lives. The way we live our lives often give us a chance to talk with others about what it is that we believe. People ask us about our faith. So if we're people of integrity, if we learn enough so that we can speak the truth and we do it with gentleness and humility, we can be effective in teaching others, even if we never have a public teaching role. That's why Paul makes it clear in this text that it's not just our words that matter. It's the personal character of our lives. Here's what Paul says to Timothy in verse 22. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, the first thing that often pops in many people's minds is that Paul is talking about sexual desire. That's because the old King James Version said, flee youthful lusts, which led people in that direction. But modern translations are more accurate by pointing out that what Paul's talking about here is a more general category of evil desires. It's not just sensual desire, but it's pride, it's selfish ambition, it's undisciplined behavior, it's arrogance, it's self-indulgence, and so much more. And while these vices might be associated with youth, or at least primarily with youth, the truth is that some people never quite grow up, including some of us. Older folks fall prey to these vices as well. And what Paul warns Timothy to do is to flee these things, that is to steer clear of them, to run away from them, to escape these dangers. And then he says, at the same time you're fleeing from them, pursue something else. And he says righteousness or a pure life, faith, loyalty to God that comes through trust in God, seeking the, uh, love, seeking the highest good for others, and peace, a right relationship with others. In other words, there's two sides here to the coin. We need to pursue, or to run, excuse me, run away from, and then also pursue or chase these virtues. Together, these words mean that we're to run away from spiritual danger and run after spiritual good, to flee one in order to escape, escape to the other. I think there's a principle here that is often we find in Paul's writings, and it's surprisingly consistent with something that modern psychology talks about and teaches us about behavioral change. It isn't enough to simply stop trying to do something. We need to, at the same time, pursue something else to replace it, something positive. So let me give you an example. It's a curious example um, that Paul wrote about in Ephesians 4.28. He says this, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So he's talking about someone who's a kleptomaniac, somebody who just can't keep their hands off other people's stuff. This person is tempted to steal, he says, should rather get a job so that their hands are occupied and then learn to be generous with what they have. It's the only way to break that cycle of greed. And it's the same here. The only way to break the power of evil desires is to pursue the virtues of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then Paul gives a metaphor to encourage Timothy and us to develop the kind of character that he's talking about. Now, it's a little bit confusing. Let me read it and then try to explain it simply. He says, in a large house, there are articles or utensils or um, even dishes, you might think of, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purpose, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared for any good work. Now, metaphor is a little bit complicated, but let me just try to explain it. He says, in the house are objects or utensils that are made of fine material that are honorable and used for special occasions. 
And there are others made of common material that are used for common everyday, even dishonorable uses. And the point he's trying to make, because this could be uh, taken in several different directions, but the point Paul's trying to make is that we're to seek to become honorable vessels, honorable uh, type of, of utensils. And it's our duty, by implication here, to intentionally pursue holiness, to be the kind of people whom God can use. Now, over the years, I've learned that one of the reasons that we don't always live the way that we ought to live is because we really don't intend to. Or let me rephrase that. One of the reasons why I don't always live the way I ought to live is that I don't really intend to live that way. Now, recently, many have commented that God can use almost anyone, even people who are far from perfect people, whether it's politicians or business leaders or anybody else. And that's certainly true, and it's good, because none of us will ever be perfect. But at the same time, the overwhelming emphasis of the Bible is that God uses clean utensils to accomplish his purposes. So we need to intentionally pursue righteousness if we want to be the kind of people that God can use. Now, you may have uh, noticed that I have rearranged everything in this particular text that Paul wrote. I did so to bring together some key themes that Paul's trying to teach Timothy, that he was to avoid senseless arguments, that he needed to be a faithful and effective teacher, and that character matters. It really matters. So I want to end with something that Paul wrote about a third of the way through the text. It's in verse 19, where he writes, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows who are his. And then he says, Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So Paul says, in the end, we can't speculate about anyone else's spiritual life. Only God knows those who are truly his. Only God sees the heart. That's why he says, the Lord knows those who are his. But at the same time, we can also get an idea or a clue by looking at the quality of someone's life. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In other words, if we say that we're a follower of Jesus Christ, others should be able to see something different in the quality of our lives. I used to serve on a board with a man named Ken. He's a distinguished professor of economics at an elite university. And I've known him for over 20 years. And every time I'm with him, I'm drawn to his godliness, his kindness, and his commitment to truth. A few years ago, there was a controversy on his campus. Um, the chair of the board of trustees tried to force the president out and force her to resign. And the faculty and students were outraged. She was beloved. Um, she was respected. And the rhetoric became very heated, and the campus uh, just about flew apart. It was a public event, and my friend got up to speak. Now, he's been teaching at this university for about 40 years, and many know his character and know him well. And even though this is not a Christian institution, they respect him for his character, and everyone listened to him. Now, he first said that he thought the president should be kept. He agreed with many who were there that day. But he also encouraged the faculty and students to show restraint. He told them not to seek revenge, to be gracious and kind even in the midst of a heated situation. And almost single-handedly, he took the emotion out of the whole experience. The president survived, and he was a person of peace in that moment. So let's be that sort of people. Let's not be quarrelsome. Let's be those who teach truth, who live godly lives, and show others the beauty of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ.